good evening and welcome to This is a Classic Live! Yes, 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 yes. Um, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, this is a classic, is a podcast that is an offshoot from Hedge Pig Ensemble Theater and Expand the Canon, where we work to establish gender equity in the classical canon. Yes, we love, we live. Um, this is a classic, is a podcast, and traditionally it's two curators sitting down to have a nice chat about one of the plays from our fabulous published lists as part of Expand the Canon. But tonight, you all get the very, very special treat of having all five of us on stage to gush about our now 36 full folio of plays that we have put out there as part of Expand the Canon. Yes. So super fabulous. That's super exciting. And then after we're done gushing, we'll have a fabulous roundtable with some amazing artistic directors who we look forward to partnering with and making some fabulous classical theater magic. Um, I would like to take a moment to honor that we are standing on the island of Manahata, the traditional land of the Lenape Hoking people. Um, tonight, we come together to rebuild the legacies of underrecognized playwrights and artists but we should all take a moment to consider the histories of violence, colonization, and imperialism that have sought to bury the stories of the, the traditional stewards of this land. As an organization, as artists, and as people, we acknowledge these artists, these stories, and the continuing struggle to return the land to its native caregivers. Um, you can get some more information about the movement to get the land back at landback.org. Um, and without further ado, please welcome the curators for Expand the Canon! This is our history. This is our legacy. That's a fabulous song that was recorded by some of our original Hedge Pig Ensemble Theater uh, members. So first, introduce ourselves. Uh, we're gonna go around, we're gonna say our name, our pronouns, how many years we've been curating, and our favorite classical theater trope, because we see so many of them. Um, <laughs> so again, hi, my name is Gagarin. My pronouns are they, them. I have been curating for now on my second year. Um, and my favorite classical theater trope is uh, pants rolls. Women in pants, I love them. Note, I'm not wearing any. <laughs> Emily? Fair. Um, hi, I'm Emily Lyon, she, her. I'm the artistic director of Hedgepig. Uh, I've been curating for five years, which has been delightful. And I really love the like, you take off your glasses, you take off your hat, and suddenly <gasps> you're a new person. That's, that's my favorite. Hi, I'm Kalina, she, her pronouns. I've been curating for two years as well. Um, my favorite trope is twins that don't look like twins. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> my name is Sky. I use she, her pronouns. I've been a curator for four years, going five years, Emily's correcting me. Um, and my favorite classical theater trope is those women who are like written to be the villains, but then like as you get older, you're like, nah, she kind of had a point. She was right. <laughs> 
Hi, everybody. My name is Teresa Cox. She, her, hers. I am the director of outreach and engagement with Hedge Pig. I have been a curator for one month. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm new to Hedge Pig also. I've been with the company for about seven months. And uh, my favorite trope, I, I like a good witch. What can I say? I like a good witch, a goddess, something metaphysical. Give me, give me a little metaphysical and we have a play. Awesome. Um, it's, it's so funny to do this live. Um, this is great. Hi. Uh, so this project has grown so much. We started it in 2020. So some of us are saying we've been doing this for five years. This is going into our fifth year, which is bananas. Um, so we started with a database of 500 plays. We now have an internal database of 7,761 titles by women and non-binary writers through history. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, yes, we have, we have a research committee that helps us find all of those titles, and God bless. So every year, it takes this team and our team of reading committee, who is usually 30-plus folks, uh, about 1,387 hours to read about 250 plays, uh, and then we read all of them again and again and again to choose each list of nine classic plays. So all of our first four years, we've put out nine classic plays uh, that currently span four centuries and five continents. If you know any dead Antarctic women who wrote plays, <laughs> please call me. Um, so now we have 36 plays, a full folio of plays by women through history that should be added to the classics, hence this is a classic. And that's really exciting. So originally, uh, thank you all for your patience. We were supposed to do this event back in September when we released our fourth list. Uh, and it was going to be kind of a different event, but don't worry, we've cooked up something real fun for you. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, thank you all. So instead of talking about our list of plays from this past year, we're going to highlight our uh, favorite plays from the past three years instead. Um, four years. Four years. I'm so sorry. I can totally That's do math. Okay. Um, and because we can't be here all night, unfortunately, even though I know all of you just want to like listen to us talk, um, we're just going to pick a couple of our favorites, and you all should go listen to the podcast episodes on them, and or listen to the podcast episodes on all of them, and or read all of the plays <laughs> available on our website. So how this is going to work is um, I'm going to pick someone at random, someone up here at random, don't worry. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to time you and say you have one minute to tell me one of your favorite plays and tell me why it's a favorite. Sound good? Sure. Ah! Let's go. You're going to start. Okay. <laughs> work, 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 work. Ready? Yes. Go. Okay, so I'm going to tell you guys about Day of the Swallows by Estella Portillo Tremblay. Um, this is a play from our new list. Um, and what's a fantastic, it's a thriller, it's a love language to queer utopia and also I feel like uh, the ostensible violence of binaries, of mm. indigenous versus uh, colonizing forces, um, queerness versus straightness, men versus women, future and past. Um, it's a truly beautiful, beautiful play that um, for me was reminiscent of Tennessee Williams. Yeah, that's what I'll say about it. Ooh, that was less than one minute, good yeah. job. Oh my God, I'll keep it short and keep it sweet. <laughs> I don't have anything to add about that play. I know a couple of us had it as our favorites. I do just have to throw in that this play, Day of the Swallows, also features 
one of Teresa's favorite tropes, yes. magicians. Um, yes. Yes. That's the only context we'll give you. If you haven't read the play, you have to now read it to find out why they're magicians. Yes. And Sky and I, this podcast episode is not out yet. It'll be coming out in the new year. And Sky and I do a very, very deep dive on the magicians and what that represents because it's, it's also a play that I think classical plays, we don't often let them sort of toe their feet into um, more kind of abstract concepts, but this is a play that certainly leans into that and welcomes a more stretching of the world. And it's, um, it's actual, it's playwright Estella herself was just like diverse in her assets and abilities. She was a teacher, she ran her own radio talk show, she wrote several plays, she established um, one of the first bilingual theaters in El Paso, Los Pobres, and she's an incredibly accomplished woman, and we are honored to be able to uplift one of her plays. And I'm so glad that more people are hopefully going to be able to get to read this thing. Because there's also, for you out there who are looking for monologues or killer scenes, really, really amazing stuff in there. Right. Who wants to go next? I'll go. Um, I would love to talk about one of our plays from our inaugural list in 2020. Rest in peace. Um, which was The Drag by Mae West. Um, the Drag by Mae West is, I think, a, such an overlooked piece of queer theatrical history. Um, most people know of Mae West as a movie star. She was also an accomplished writer and an activist. And The Drag, uh, though it was never performed on Broadway, was like a really transgressive play that she actually wrote through a devising process with a bunch of queer men living in the West Village in the 1920s. The play it is a really authentic depiction of the struggles of queer men during that period. Um, it is a really authentic portrayal of queer friendships. There is a drag ball on stage in the middle of the play. Um, and those relationships, although you know, these are characters that are facing a lot of discrimination and trauma, those depictions of friendship feel really real and authentic and feel very much like what those relationships are for queer people today. Um, and it's a really beautiful play. And there's That's a drag ball, like I said, which is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Did she get arrested for indecency for this one? Or I know she wrote sex too. She, one of them she got arrested for. She got arrested for the play Sex, um, which was on Broadway. Um, and that one she did get arrested for. And went to jail in a limo. Yes. <laughs> which is my favorite fact in the world, maybe. It's great. She is also, I think, one of those people that got, she has sort of like the Marilyn Monroe treatment a little mm. bit where people sort of like vilify her, I think because she was um, seen as like this sex symbol or whatever. And so people didn't think of her as like an accomplished, smart, capable woman. They saw her for her looks alone. Um, and if you read about her, if you read her writing, she's like a really transgressive figure in a lot of ways um, and a really fascinating person. And was somebody we were very, very excited to honor and uplift. I, I just think it's so interesting now in the conversations we're having about uh, across the country that even the title of this is going to be intense for some communities. And I think saying, well, no, it's it's a classic. It's it's classic theater. It'd be a great <laughs> in if we can sneak it in. And that's a trope that we probably could have addressed um, in terms of mm. a trope of drag in classical theater well, a little bit with we talked about it with um, women in the pants plates but yeah it is it is a classic trope that's been around forever and the backlash that we see now is just sort of <laughs> obscene and stupid but it is what it is yeah okay so if you want to transgress gender roles consider the drag that was also one of the first episodes of this is a classic i ever listened to and it is one of my favorites it's very well done <laughs> 
Okay, everyone go listen to Geek's favorite podcast <laughs> episode. All right, uh, Teresa, do you want to go next? Sure. All right, so if you are looking for a play that deals with uh, the intense political and human issues surrounding genocide, colonialism, if you're looking for a play of where you are talking about horrors um, that happen as people are trying to fight for their freedom and how things like religion are used as oppressive forces, um, then I've got a play for you. It's written by a little playwright named Lorraine Hansberry, and the play's called Les Blancs. Um, this is a play that, the one reason that this play is a classic is because it does what a lot of plays, and especially now, we kind of teased it a little bit with um, talking about the drag issue, especially now, so many playwrights want to deal with political and social issues, and so many of them don't know how to do it through dramatic writing. What you get instead is an essay on stage, which is fine. No, it's not. Don't, <laughs> let me read it, don't put that on stage. But, but what Lorraine did, I, and I promise you, when you read this play, that that's when you see an American master, because she made fully-fledged human beings. She made some of the fiercest, hottest dialogues and monologues you can, um, you will ever hear or see. And um, she made you see people who obviously are villains, but see them three-dimensionally, which is very hard to do. I'm probably over a minute. Yes, but you know, Lorraine Hansberry can't be contained. Okay, so. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so yeah, I could talk all day about about Miss Lorraine. Um, and what's funny is because we all know her as um, the first black woman to be produced on Broadway. I think it was 59 with The Raisin in the Sun. She also was educated um, through W.E.B. Du Bois and the, all of these great uh, iconic black intellectuals came through their house in Chicago. but. Moreover, she was always, from a very young age, really interested in black liberation, pan-Africanism, and how it applied in the Americas and how it applied in Africa. She said, she has this quote from 51 that says, um, she wanted to write a classic, plays, a classic play for a classic people. And I think, I think it's like dr mic drop on that one enough said. And the sad part is she died, she left us I think at 34, somewhere yeah. in there. Um, and she actually didn't 100% um, complete the play. Her ex-husband Nimaroff and um, uh, some other colleagues um, kind of helped finish it to what we know of it today. But it is a classic. Check it out. I'm probably way over time, but uh, you know what? Enough said on that. Yeah. I think <laughs> this is a classic. Check it out. Classic place for classic. I'll just people. add: if I could make everyone in America read one play, it would be Live Long. Good work. Can't follow that. Do you, Do you want to share your favorite play next? Sure. Besides Leblanc. Yes. Oh, God, there's so many. Um, yes. Okay. So the play I read when I was like, okay, this expand the canon thing is going to work was from our first list, A Bold Stroke for a Husband. And I am on a campaign, I kid you not, um, that this play should permanently replace Taming of the Shrew. It has everything you want from Taming of the Shrew, and in fact, it is actually what you want Taming of the Shrew to be instead. Um, instead of having two women characters who have sort of half personalities, and then you have to turn yourself into a pretzel to make the ending kind of okay if you're like a feminist, and if you're not, why are you doing this play? I have so many questions for you. I don't want to talk, actually, it's fine. Um, but <laughs> the point is, Bull stroke for a husband, you've got five dynamic women characters, they all have agency, they all move the play forward, they all have like their own opinions on romance, and it is funny as heck. Was that a minute? That was less. Good yes. job. 
I just I just was also want to highlight what Emily said of like this play is so fun. This is this play is on the page funny. This is a play you will read and laugh out loud reading. There's a whole bit of like it has the wonderful theater trope of like all of the absurd suitors that come to call and they're all just hysterically whimsically over the top um, and on the page hysterically funny. Just an absolute treat. Also for any resident acting company, there's, there's no bad roles in this play. It's all just really, really good writing, really snappy, really clever, and just a great time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I saw the, we did a reading of this play last year, and I saw it, um, and I often find that, like, even as, like, a classics lover, you know, you go see a Shakespeare, and you're like, well, they've been talking for a really long time. And they're still talking, and we're still in this scene. Okay, cool. But when I saw Bold Stroke for a Husband, I was shocked at how quickly it clipped by, mostly because of the fantastic comedy and the amazing performances. Hi, Sky, you were in that. Um, and it was like, oh, okay, so this is what a classical comedic night could feel like. And especially given that it was just a reading with music stands, not even full-fledged production and fabulous like clowning falling down that like some of the suitors could really kick ass at so there it is anyone who wants to go produce that and do some clowning um i will shout out one of our partners island shakespeare festival who did produce that last summer mm -hmm. and it was really great i'm not biased Direct <laughs> i directed it um yeah but it, the play is great and Kalina, what's your favorite play? Yeah, great question. Um, okay, so one of my favorite plays, to, to bring the mood down a tiny bit, but not too much, um, is actually by one of my now favorite playwrights, after I read this play, Wokaku Yomauchi, um, and her play in The Soul Shall Dance, um, which is this beautiful, just like, seemingly very simple, but deceptively deep, complex play about Japanese-American farmers pre-internment camps. Yes. They existed pre-internment camps as well. Um, and it is about these two families of farmers who are neighbors, one of whom his daughter is arriving from Japan to join him. And it's about how these families sort of navigate assimilation, navigate each other, try to figure out what a community looks like, how they help each other, and just manage the struggles of trying to make a living as a farmer, in, as a Japanese-American farmer in America. I find every time we do a list, there's like one play that is the first one that we're like, oh, that's gotta be on the list. And for me and the Soul Shell Dance was the first, like, this is our anchor. Like that year, I was like, no, we th this is it. We found one. Okay, we'll start here and we'll build everything else around it. This play for me lives in this sort of genre of like Steinbecky, like sort of great American plains and they're in the farmers and stuff like that. Um, and you know, I, I'm clearly a city girl, um, but in a way that feels like very, very, very like what people think of as sort of like quintessentially like American literature and to like have a different perspective on that is I think really quintessential to like expanding the canon. Um, but also, um, yeah, it's just like a very grounded, earthy, beautiful play. Um, some great roles for women also. Um, some really heartbreaking female characters in that play. Um, and very much about like young womanhood as yeah. well. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's heartbreaking and beautiful. It also has one of the most compelling like end scenes I've ever read in one of our Expand the Canon plays. I don't want to spoil it, but it the the ending is like I just reading the play, it brought me to tears because it is like first of all, it's like the the title of the play happening in one moment. 
and also because it's like you you're watching this entire play and it's very much about like this tension that I think all the characters are existing between like being sort of in this very kind of classically American Steinbecky like environment but they themselves are trying to find not necessarily their place within that they're just trying to find their place where they can survive and thrive and be happy and like the entire sort of world around them keeps rejecting that and like watching that struggle play out is crazy and it's also like when I tell people about this play they're like people wrote plays about that and it's like yes yes Yes, they did and they did it very well go read it all right who wants to go next should we go back to gigs Oh, me for round two? Yeah. Okay, for sure. Ready? Because the other play that's my favorite is the one that you and I did our podcast episode Yes, we on. did. Both of my plays are from the new list. I have read all the other old plays, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel really, really passionate about these two. And also because these two were two of the ones that I discovered on our, like, when we were passing through. These were both ones that I found, and I was like, these are going on. I don't know, like, they have to. Um, so this play is Mother of 1084 by Mahaswita Devi. Um, for me, this one, Bertolt Brecht, the mother, eat your heart out. Like, <laughs> she's got you down on the floor. This is um, a play that occurs. So Sujata is a mother in a moderately well-off family. And on the eve of her daughter's engagement party is coinciding with the two-year anniversary of her son Brati's death. Um, Brati died under semi unsure circumstances and she basically then spends this next day unraveling what happened behind his death which was that he was being an active uh, rebel against their current corrupt government and was working to uplift um, and support lower oh my god already keep going um, (laughs) uplift and uh, free the lower castes from their oppressive system um, and as a result of that, he was killed by the state. But she had no idea about this. And this play basically follows her through not just realizing that that was a truth that her son had hidden from her, but that she is playing a very active role in the continual oppression and in the power structure that ultimately murdered her son. As a woman who is well off, as a woman who lives in a seat of power, and as a woman who can afford to ignore and not see the injustice around her. Um, and it is a realization that is like so large, it just like shatters her whole world. Um, I'll just shout out one of my favorite things about this play is the woman on woman scenes in this play are heart shattering and unbelievably um, cutting in the way that they, they, don't, they don't hold back. And Mahasweta Devi was a woman who was known for never holding back. There's a famous quote from a friend of hers who is like, you would never know when out of nowhere in the middle she would stop polite conversation and call someone a complete fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she's she's a baddie and yeah. she, she wrote about it like that. I agree. I think one of my favorite things about this play is that it, I, it like totally encapsulates the like be specific so you can be universal. It is mm-hmm. such a specific political situation mm-hmm. that she's writing in. Um, and such a specific scenario for their lead character. Um, and yet through that, in like 40 short pages, maybe more, maybe less, she manages to create this whole story that's so powerful and moving and about change. And I think there's so many, you know, to your point of specific and universal, there are so many places right now where this story feels 
horrifyingly relevant, just like hauntingly relevant. And I am really excited to, to s hopefully see that. Well, we know we'll see at least one reading of it this year. So stay tuned. Yeah, Happy Scott, to round two. <laughs> um, speaking of haunting relevancy, um, the next play that I would like to talk about is a play that we discovered in 2020 in our first inaugural list again. Um, so, it, so this was the summer of 2020. Um, protests were happening uh, all over the country in support of Black Lives Matter. And we were all in COVID lockdown. And then we found this play by Alice Childress called Wedding Band, which if you have read this play, I know see some of you nodding and you understand why I'm talking about the context we discovered this play in because the play is about an interracial relationship during the early 20th century flu pandemic. Um, so <laughs> really was just sort of a, mo a perfect moment of this play now, um, but uh, holds up even obviously a couple years later and was as relevant in the time it was written, which was I believe like the 1960s or something, um, as it was the play, as it was relevant to the time she was writing about, which was you know the 19 teens as it is now. Um, so truly just an extraordinary piece of writing. Um, uh, 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 it's just, Alice Childress is one of the best playwrights of the 20th century, hands down. This play is sensitive, this play is empathic, this play is heartbreaking, this play is tender. It is a beautiful, intimate portrait of how our politics play out in, in our microcosms. Um, there are, all of her characters are just real, real people, um, and it is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of theater. It is one of my favorite plays I've ever read um, and haunts me to this day, um, yeah. When we were making that first list in 2020, we were really talking about, well, when what is the cutoff for a classic play? You know, should we only do ones that are in public domain? Like what, what do we do? How does that, where does that end? Um, and I think part of that question was answered very easily by reading Wedding Band and we were like, well, I don't care when this was written, this is a classic. I mean, we do kind of care, um, but it, it was definitely really helpful to to have such a, an excellent play that was just like, nope, you're going up to at least 1960, we're including this, and then we keep pushing the boundary. But, um, but yeah, it was, how could you not? How could you not? It really is, I, and I think that it's what Emily said, of like, we define classic theater as that those plays that just transcend time, of like, this play now, this play 40 years ago, this play 100 years ago, is equally as poignant, um, and, God, I hope that it, I, like, I would love to live in a world where this particular play is less poignant in 200 years, because I think hopefully that is a better world. Um, but it is so beautifully written that I think, at the very least, it is an incredible piece of theater that should be studied, should be put up, should be produced forever. Amazing. Continue producing it. Cheese Okay, so... If you're looking for a 17th century Spanish Baroque play, which I know all of you are, um, if you are looking for a verse play, if you're looking for a play that literally has a character named Don Juan in it, if you are looking for a play where uh, the female lead plays with your emotions as the audience member or the reader because you're sympathetic to her and then she does some stuff and you're like, oh no, she didn't and she really did, then <laughs> I got a play for you. It's called The Stone Host by Lesia Ukrenka. 
And as you may be able to figure out from her name, Leslie Ukrainka is Ukrainian, and a Ukrainian playwright writing about 17th century Spain. Who knew? And, and yet she does it absolutely skillfully, and it's uh, this beautiful play that starts off in a graveyard and deals with um, all of these machinations and really deals with the tension of, um, the, of when you have aristocracy, so the people from Madrid versus the people, uh, more sensual people from Seville, and the and the clash of the rules and what is considered proper um, of that um, of folks who consider themselves more uh, aristocratic versus people who may be a little bit more sensual. But moreover, and this is why for me it very much is an important piece of work. It deals. This play deals with how a woman negotiates power when she has, when she's disenfranchised and she does not own property. And so, you know, because this is 17th century Spain, and I'm, I'm at a minute, and we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna stop. But, <laughs> so we, because <laughs> that's the point I wanna talk about a lot, but, but we can jam on that one a little bit, I'll open it up. Consider uh, yeah. listening to our podcast <laughs> if you wanna know more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, especially because we just did a, rec- yes. a reading of this recently. Starring the wonderful Sky and the wonderful Gagarin. Yes, which was super Directed super by Teresa. Directed by Teresa. Um, it was one of those, I mean, I, this one also has a twist ending that I promise I won't spoil. But, um, a little metaphysical. Very yeah. metaphysical mm. in its ending. But also, like, one of those plays where it's, I don't know necessarily what kind of a crowd we were expecting, but the crowd that we had when we did that reading was so vocally responsive, especially to the end, which is like, I think just like fabulous proof of that. First of all, Lesia knows how to write a thriller. Yes. I've read a few other of her plays and they are all, they all ride this really almost like Hitchcockian kind of level of like building tension. Um, and yeah, that's where I'm gonna leave it on that. It is also, I guess, the two things I want to put in is one, it's also really funny. Like, yes. it's a very intense verse play, but it's hilarious. And I will just say that our pitch is usually if you wish you could see Lady M take on Don Juan, this is the play for you. And I think that says enough. I would just add, it's even worse than Lady M for me because, <laughs> because Lady M starts off like kind of brutal. Uh, the lead character, Anna, doesn't. You really feel sorry for her because you feel like she, oh, she doesn't have the agency to marry for love. She has to um, enter in a marriage because of political and financial reasons. And then she does some ladyum stuff later on, and you just are like, okay, okay, sis, I was rooting for you, but then you did this, and then, but then, to your point, kind of slay a little bit in some in terms of a lot of stuff she did. So I will also say it has one of the most heartbreaking breakup scenes. I love that all of our second rounds are like and then this one's a little sad uh so continuing that theme anima uh or her soul is one of my other favorite plays and it is the earliest play that i know of that is really beautifully dealing with me too themes um it's written in the late 1800s by a jewish italian writer uh, Emilia pincelle rosselli and I love that you have to say her middle name because her grandkid is also named Emilia Rosselli and became a famous writer also, so work legacy. But Anima breaks your heart and then it builds it back up again. And then maybe it breaks it again a little bit. Uh, I think this is a story that should, if anybody is like, oh, I I think I wanna do a Chekhov play, but I don't know which, 
please read this first. If you really decide you need to do Three Sisters, cool, but Anima is is just a heartbreaking, beautiful story that as a survivor of sexual assault, I just think it talks about that conversation with such heart and nuance that made me really feel seen and like so grateful that a woman was handling this topic. Like I just felt like that was, once again, I was like, this is why we need this list because we need women to be telling their versions of these stories and giving their versions of these monologues. And it is not all just like trauma dumping. It is like reclaiming what do you do with that trauma and becoming a powerful badass of a human who has spoilers, a really great relationship after that. Ha. Um, okay, I'm done. I think also the thing that I really like about this play is like there's no sort of sensationalizing or like trauma yeah. porn aspect of it. Like the whole, it's dealt with very tactfully and tenderly and carefully. And it is also very much a play that is less so about the experience of assault itself and more so about how you become a person afterwards and who you who is that new you afterwards and how you find new communities and new ways of being in the world, which I isn't something I see on stage um, and is a really, I think, important narrative of like, survivors are not just survivors, they're also fully rounded people who will go on to have experiences beyond this thing. Um, and so I think it's a really beautiful story because of that. Uh, I'm gonna bring us back up a little bit Yay. from trauma. Yay. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna talk about this play that uh, throws love triangles out the window and introduces you to the love octagon. <laughs> um, so Juana Ynez de Cruz's House of Desires uh, is this far funny, like hilarious, farcical love story where everyone is in love with the wrong person and they're all locked in a house together. Um, not locked in, perhaps, but they're all stuck in a house together, we'll say. Um, and there's these wily servants running around doing people's bidding, maybe messing some stuff up on their own. Um, and everyone's just trying to figure out who's who. Sometimes the lights go off and you don't know who, who you're touching. Um, <laughs> It happens to all of us. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. And has a happy ending, but in the middle, there's just a bunch of hijinks and mistaken identities and purposefully mistaken identities, perhaps. Um, and it's just a delightful comedy written by, I think her, what is her monarch? Her moniker was like the, the nun writer yeah. or something. So Juana Inez was a nun because famously she said that she had to give up um, like bodily pleasures in order to be more creative. So uh, discover this play. Which is also interesting because she wrote some sexy lesbian poetry. Very true. Yes. <laughs> um, also, if for some reason, uh, Billy Porter, you're listening, there's like a three-page monologue in this that I would love for you to do. Um, once again, call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, we want to talk about like, I feel like so much of Big Span the Canon loves to focus on like, um, women in like a feminine experience because that's often where a lot of our playwrights are centered around and that's often the stories that they are writing about themselves. They're writing about women who experience things that they feel like they want to talk about. Um, in this play, what I love the most is how all of the women are like constantly, they're just trying to find like the guy that they love because the guy that they love is great and the guy who is in love with them is trash and just like <laughs> so they're like so over it but then also like within it's very um uh uh kathleen captasuter did a fantastic production of this 
um, about repertorio that I saw. And what was so delightful is that uh, she put like a Love Island kind of spin on this play. And I will tell you what, I think that is probably one of the smartest modern ways to adapt. Like when we talk about hijinks, like people getting like locked in rooms and like throwing temper tantrums because they didn't get picked at the matching ceremony. You know what? They should. Because it's sad. <laughs> Anyways, I'm kidding. Um, we are unfortunately out of time for this little Yay. game. Yay. Um, but we have 36 plays, only 10 of which we talked about, so consider going and reading about them, Aye. listening to us talk more about them. I know you want to hear our voices all day long. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass it to you. The drinking game is how many times are we going to tell you to read these plays tonight? Um, so we've talked a little bit about sort of the past of Expand the Canon, as I think Giggs and Emily may have alluded to at the beginning. We have 36 plays, which for those of you real nerds out there is the number of plays in Shakespeare's Olio. So we're sort of in this reflective moment, but we're also thinking about what happens next. And in sort of uh, processing the last few years and in reviewing all the fabulous plays that perhaps haven't made the list yet, we have come to a realization, which is, it's, well, it's not really a new realization. Basically, there's a long time problem, which is short plays. Short plays have been the bane of our existence since this uh, project started for a couple of reasons. One is we just don't know what to do with them. They're hard to pitch to major theater houses in the States and beyond. But the reality of the situation is that a lot of these writers were writing at a time where they were not considering the commercial viability of their plays. These are writers who were writing closet dramas. They were not expecting to be produced. They were not writing so that they could get picked up and transferred to Broadway. They were just writing for writing's sake um, or writing to put on plays with their friends in a parlor. And so because of that, a lot of these fantastic writers were writing short plays um, because that was the medium that was accessible. So we've had this conundrum for a few years of we would read these phenomenal pieces of theater by writers that we think should be studied and celebrated that we didn't know how to pitch and we didn't know how to position on this list. Um, and then we said, screw it. So we're doing a list of short plays <laughs> this year. Um, you heard it here first. And we're really excited about this for a lot of reasons. Um, one, like we said, there's a few plays that we have just been sitting on and agonizing over how beautiful and excellent they are since this project started. And so to finally have the chance to potentially celebrate some of those, I think is something that we're all very excited about. So keep an eye out for that'll be coming this year. Um, and looking beyond that, I think there's a lot of stuff that we've done at this point in this project that we're really proud of. Um, all of these plays and partnerships, and we have some more exciting partnerships which we'll be talking about shortly. Um, but there are so many more things we want to do. I mean, I think, you know, with unlimited budgets, we'd love to be able to travel the globe and meet with academics all over the world. And there are so many of these plays also because, you know, they were not widely studied at the times they were being produced that exists perhaps only in one form in like some obscure library in this one city that like this one librarian wrote about 20 years ago and nobody else knows it exists and it's completely inaccessible. Nothing's being digitized because nobody cares. Um, and so we'd love to be able to, you know, send our people to those places. Or, you know, if that isn't financially feasible, we'd love to, you know, be able to continue to 
expand our expand the canon network um which has been the, i think one of the more rewarding parts of this project is like all of you um thank you for coming out tonight and for continuing to be a part of this and for being geeky about this as we are and we've met so many incredible people from all over the globe who care about this mission there is a desire to expand the canon. It is not just us in this room, and there are people all over the world who can help this happen. So even if we cannot, in our dream scenario, go on a, a jet-setting tour of the world where we read all these incredible plays. Billionaires, Although if you want to write us a check. Um, or even millionaires. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not picky. Call I'll me fly, also. I'll fly coach. Um, <laughs> a solid thousandaire would actually help. Thousandaire. So we just put out our budget. All we could use it. But barring anybody donating large sums of money, which you should if you can, but um, we're excited to connect with people. So if you know people that uh, who live not in this city, or people who do live in this city, um, who care about this project, who you think would be interested in this, if you have an aunt who's an academic in this one obscure place of in the Italy or whatever, connect them with us. We're so excited to talk to them, um, and this project is like we said at the beginning, it's not just the five of us on stage. It really is a community effort. We have our reading committee, we have our research committee, we have volunteers, we have people who donate their time um, and their efforts and their brilliance and their taste, and we are so grateful for all of that. Um, and we have some really cool partners. And we have some extremely cool partners, which I think is Emily's way of saying wrap it up so we can get on to the next section. Yes. Um, we, as alluded to, we're, uh, we have a really exciting reading series coming up this year. So all the plays from our 2023 list are going to be produced in a fabulous reading series. And we are so excited to have a number of those fabulous partner companies here tonight to talk to you because you are now tired of us. So to that end, I'm going to hand things over to Teresa to introduce our fabulous guests. And we hope you'll grab another drink, stick around for a fabulous little Q&A. Yeah, starting in like five minutes. In like one minute. <laughs> yeah.